What is up, you gaggle of ghouls? My name is John Solo, and I need a little more time to get the messed up origins of vampires done, so this week we're covering the weird and wild history of haunted houses. When I was in college, I worked in a haunted house for one night. It was part of a fundraiser for my fraternity, and I hated every minute of it. The makeup they put on me smelled bad and looked like nothing. Really, my whole outfit was shit. They clearly didn't have a vision for me when putting together my costume. They locked me in a cage for six hours, a cage that was in a room designed to look like Jeffrey Dahmer's slaughterhouse, and for six straight hours, I had to bang my hands against the cage as guests walked by and begged them to help me. But that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was when one of the customers broke the handle off the cage, the door swung open, and he said, you're free, and then ran into the next room. And I thought for a second that I really was free. There was a staff member who would walk through now and again to make sure the actors were all okay, and I told them that someone broke the cage door. But instead of letting me shirk my responsibilities, or even better, just jump out from behind a table instead of the cage, he said, there's only two hours left, just hold the cage door shut while you bang it so it doesn't open. So picture that visual. Me, in makeup, begging to be let out of a cage that I was keeping shut. If that doesn't sound scary, that's because it wasn't. I scared no more people that night. Anyway, in my opinion, haunted houses are kind of like nursery rhymes. Stick with me, this metaphor tracks. Because haunted houses have just been around our whole lives. We're all totally accustomed to the idea of paying someone to make us feel like we're about to die in horrifying and painful ways, but not to actually kill us because we like being alive, or at least prefer it. But just like when you're singing a nursery rhyme and stop to really consider how weird the words you're saying are and what they could possibly mean, I'm looking at you ring around the rosy, Stopping and considering the idea of haunted houses raises just as many questions. Like I can't help but wonder how long haunted houses have been around. Were there cavemen who decked out their caves with fake little graveyards and put grapes and coconuts and told their friends they were touching saber-tooth eyeballs? Probably not, because I don't think saber-tooths, saber teeth? I don't think saber-toothed tigers lived anywhere near coconuts. Also, life was scary enough back then, right? People were in danger of being eaten on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. If they wanted an adrenaline rush, they just had to take two steps outside. Chapter 1. The First Houses of Horror The first business to ever open with the objective of giving people the creeps and satisfying their morbid curiosity was, impressively enough, a business that is still open to this day. I'm talking about Marie Tussauds Wax Museum. So you know how every so often you'll see an article on Twitter or Facebook about a celebrity getting their own wax sculpture and how sometimes those sculptures look freakishly realistic while others appear to be of said celebrity's evil twin? Well, a lot of those models, both good and bad, are produced by Marie Tussauds Wax Museum, which is crazy to think about because her career started back in 1777 when she created her first wax figure of the French writer and philosopher Voltaire. But the sculptures Marie made were not for the sole purpose of inflating celebrities' already swollen egos like they are today. In fact, many of her most famous statues weren't even of people who were still alive. The collection that she opened to the London public in 1802 was called the Chamber of Horrors and included the decapitated figures of King Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, Marat, and Robespierre 
all figures from the French Revolution. This meant that for the first time ever, the average commoner could get up close and personal with the most powerful figures in history and see what they looked like, post-mortem of course. What made these sculptures so impressive was their accuracy. Tussaud molded the faces of these models from the deceased individual's death masks, plaster moldings that were made of their faces after they were killed. I've done a whole episode on death masks if you want to check it out, but this meant that visitors could be confident that what they were seeing was as close to the real deal as it got which was a pretty big deal in a time period before cameras. Later in the 1800s came La Théâtre du Grand Guignol, which translates to the theater of the great puppet. At least it does when you pronounce it correctly. But don't write it off yet, because these weren't simple puppet shows people were lining up to see. No, the Grand Guignol Theater specialized in what they called naturalistic horror shows. You can basically think of them as the old-timey equivalent of modern-day splatter films. The shows they put on pushed the limits of special effects to show the most graphic violence imaginable in the most realistic way possible. They created knives that spurted out blood, squibs, and elaborate sleight-of-hand tricks to cut off limbs and tear out guts. Even more impressive, they did all of this on a 20-foot wide stage in front of an audience that was sitting close enough to shake hands with the actors. So that's a testament to how believable these effects were. But sadly, unlike Marie Tussaud's museums, the Guignol Theater no longer exists. After the Second World War, its director, Charles Nonin, said, before the war, everyone felt that what was happening on stage was impossible. Now we know that these things, and worse, are possible in reality. It doesn't get much darker than that. But while people no longer wanted to be exposed to ultra-realistic depictions of violence and death, they did still enjoy being spooked. And this is where the world's first commercialized haunted house comes in. The Orton and Spooner Ghost House opened in London in 1915, and for the first time ever, guests could do exactly what we do today. Get up close and personal with the unknown and frightening, and come out safely on the other side. In nearly complete darkness, visitors would walk through a maze of moving floors that blasted out air and vibrating walls that could collapse at any moment. The house doesn't feature the usual modern gimmicks like costumed actors or models of ghosts and goblins, but it sure was enough to give 1920s Londoners the heebie-jeebies. Now believe it or not, the popularity of haunted houses here in America isn't solely the result of capitalism doing its thing. Sure, the money-making element would be a nice byproduct down the line, but originally these things were put together for the sole purpose of public safety. How exactly do haunted houses and public safety correlate? I had the same question. And I'll give you the surprising answer after a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I don't know about you guys, but pretty much every time I've gone through a haunted house, I've needed emotional and mental support straight away. I couldn't tell you what happened during my childhood, but something about the smell of rubber masks and corn syrup takes me to some dark places. But hey, we all have insecurities, right? We all have trauma, and some of us need help with how to carry this baggage, clearly. In my experience, it's extremely helpful to speak with someone about what's ailing us. Getting to vocalize these issues somewhere outside of our mind and receive non-biased feedback makes our inner demons so much easier to confront. That's why I like BetterHelp. They're a fantastic service that connects you with professional and licensed therapists who wanna help you become a better problem solver. All you have to do is answer a few questions about yourself and in less than 48 hours, BetterHelp can find you a therapist that fits you best from their extensive network of board certified providers. And if you happen to not click with your therapist like you were hoping, you can switch at any time. It's also easier than ever to speak to your therapist. 
text, you can do phone calls, video calls, or even direct message, whatever method you are most comfortable with. Whether you need to offload some stress, help with anxiety and depression, or recover from trauma, therapy can get you where you wanna go, and I can get you a discount. Just go to betterhelp.com slash John Solo to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash John Solo. Chapter two, better scared than sorry. Every year on Halloween, our homes are visited by ghosts, goblins, and demons from other dimensions who present to us a choice. A choice that could either take our lives to the penultimate or send us spiraling into the pits of hell. That choice is a deceptively simple one. Trick or treat. You see, this choice is actually a threat. If one denies their visitor a treat, they shall go on to be tricked. And it was these tricks that led to the creation of haunted houses. Let me explain. Pulling pranks has been a staple of Halloween since the very beginning. But there was a time in North American history where the youngsters took their pranks too far. Instead of continuing their mostly harmless pranks, like stealing a gate off someone's fence and putting it in a nearby tree, or laying a prop dead body on some railroad tracks to stop a train, they just decided to destroy property. It was Halloween night in 1933, in the midst of the Great Depression, when a group of 200 boys vandalized their town. They flipped over cars, sawed down telephone poles, and opened up fire hydrants to flood city streets. Then, when the cops showed up to try and put an end to the chaos, the boys just said, fuck the police, because their group of 200 was so much more than the cops could handle. This night, which has been dubbed Black Halloween, was the final straw for adults across the country. Halloween was officially out of hand, and some cities were considering banning it altogether, but a few organizations recognized that this would only make things worse. So instead of stripping away one of the four things that children back in the 30s could do for fun, the YMCA and local Boy Scout troops began to organize parties, parades, carnivals, and costume contests for Halloween night to give the youth something less destructive to do at their time. And that strategy worked. There's an article included in a publication from the Rotary Club in 1939, so six years after Black Halloween, that celebrated the monumental decrease in vandalism that holiday. They said that whole communities were coming together to put on events for the kids. Some store owners paid for parties, the local boxing gym stayed open so the meaner hooligans could burn off their teenage angst safely, and schools began organizing costume parades. Haunted houses were also part of these distractions, and some people even put them on in their own homes. This Halloween fun book, printed by the Minneapolis Halloween Committee in 1937, instructs readers on how to build what they call a trail of terror. An outside entrance leads to a rendezvous with ghosts, witches in the cellar or attic. Hang old fur, strips of raw liver on walls where one feels his way to dark steps. Weird moans and howls come from dark corners. Damp sponges and hairnets hung from the ceiling touch his face. Doorways are blockaded so that guests must crawl through a long, dark tunnel. At the end, he hears a plaintive meow and sees a black cardboard cat outlined in luminous paint. Sounds pretty spoopy, eh? But while families and local businesses found great success with their annual haunted house events, the commercial haunted house industry hadn't yet taken off. This would all change in a few decades though with the construction of what might be the most famous haunted house of all time. Chapter three, the haunted mansion. The popularity of haunted houses here in America led to Walt Disney himself wanting to include one in Disneyland. 
Granted, the idea didn't become a reality until over a decade after the park was opened, but it was jotted down in his early notes for the park and Imagineers experimented with its design for years. This was Disneyland, so they weren't going to rely on the usual gimmicks of turning off the lights and letting the guests' imaginations do the rest. They wanted their visitors to see everything while still causing their imaginations to run wild. This would be done through cutting edge special effects, but also by engaging the guests in a story, which originally was about a sea captain who killed his nosy wife, then hanged himself after her ghost haunted him into insanity. Funnily enough, the hanging man visual they'd envisioned way back then would go on to be used in the mansion's final design. Though in this version, the man hanging is the ghost host narrator. I'm sad to say that Walt Disney passed away a few years before the Haunted Mansion opened, so he never did get to see the completed project or how much his guests enjoyed it. But maybe his ghost did. Regardless, the impact he had on the future of Halloween entertainment would never be forgotten. Lisa Morton, author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween, writes that a lot of the professional haunters will point to one thing, and that's Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. It's the start of the haunted attraction industry. The popularity of the Haunted Mansion showed that there was real demand for this kind of experience, and the technology that Disney used caused those wanting to make a name for themselves in the industry to step up their game. They, of course, would not be able to copy Disney's most cutting-edge effects because of the price and patents, but it gave them a reason to move beyond the simple ghost-in-a-sheet type stuff. If they could provide a more believable experience, they would make more money. Simple as that. From this point onward, commercial haunted houses and other immersive scary events would continue to grow in popularity. Other amusement parks like California's Knott's Berry Farm started hosting their annual Knott's Scary Farm event in 1973. Universal Studios would join in on the fun in 1991 with their Fright Night celebration, which is now known as Halloween Horror Nights. And then there's the smaller, more local haunted houses. In 2015, the Haunted House Association, a trade group group of haunted house operators estimated there are roughly 2,700 haunted houses operating in the United States today. And combined, they bring in $300 million a year. Not bad for an industry that's only officially in season for a few months out of the year. Though I would argue that we should have themed houses of horror for every holiday, especially Kashmir Pulaski Day. Come on, Chicagoans. Who's with me? No, but in all seriousness, what holiday do you think would be the most fun to design a haunted house for? Valentine's Day? The 4th of July? Chinese New Year? I want to hear your thoughts, so hit me up on social media. Links for those are in the description. Then, if you want to support the show and help our community grow, sacrifice those five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods. I'll see you all next week with the very messed up origins of vampires, for real this time. Until then, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first. Thank you.